Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. My name is Nico. Thanks so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got. That's your time. I am very conscious that you've chosen to be here and you could be somewhere else. I hope that you get a ton of value out of the time that you spend here on Suncast. And hey, if it's your first time, would love it if you would give us your feedback in the form of a rating or even a review. iTunes is where more than 50% of you tune in from. And uh, if that's where you are, love it if you just give us a rating there. Spotify as well. Give us a thumbs up. Subscribe to the podcast if you are learning something here. And speaking of learning, today we are going to have an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, a friend of mine down in Austin, Texas, Zach Livingston of ClearTrace get into the ins and outs of carbon accounting and all the reasons why it has not to date been done very well and how his company, ClearTrace, is leveling up their game and yours. And if you do like what you hear, please consider subscribing to our newsletter over on mysuncast.com where twice weekly content just like this gets delivered to your inbox so you can always know how to learn from more than 350 founders and startup wizards just like yourself. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, climate and solar warriors, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we're going to have fun in a conversation with a friend of mine that I've known for years and who has recently transitioned into a new role at a hot tech startup down in Texas, the hottest solar market in the land. So he's always been on the pulse. And uh, I like to check in with Mr. Zach Livingston from time to time to see what I don't know about what I don't know to try to stay ahead of you all. That's why we bring folks like Zach onto the show. So without further ado, Mr. Zach Livingston, head of sales at ClearTrace, welcome to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. Thanks for having me. Long time listener, big time fan of yours, and really love what you're building with Suncast and the media platform. So uh, excited for today's show. Thanks, my friend. Likewise, likewise. We're going to get into what uh, what you guys are doing at ClearTrace. But before we do that, let's set the stage for folks that maybe don't know Zach, don't know anything about how you have been participating in the renewables world. Can you give us a flavor of how you first got your toes wet in the world of solar or renewable energy and why, why you decided to have a career in, in this crazy world? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And we got to go a little bit further back to really kind of take you to the inflection point of how did I even want to explore making a career in this space? And, you know, I'll take you back to undergrad at University of Colorado in Boulder. And I started my undergrad as an um, integrated physiology major, um, really exploring kind of exercise physiology, kinesiology, thinking I wanted to do sports medicine and really enjoyed it and loved what I was learning, but realized about halfway through college that, you know, I was just not going to spend the next 10 years in medical school and really put my full effort into be successful in that career vertical. 
I mean, this was at the height of the economic crisis in kind of 2008 and 2009. So hit the reset button, really having no idea what I wanted to do at that point, and effectively decided to change course and change my major to international affairs, pretty much solely on the context that the domestic market was horrible at the time. And I was like, well, I may as well broaden my horizons and explore internationally. And it was a multidisciplinary major across language, economics, political science. So it just seemed like a good good thing for a kid with no idea to do to explore a couple of different areas. And I was lucky enough that a professor at NCAR, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Research, had been laid off in the economic crisis and took an adjunct professorship teaching a class called Climate and International Society, which was recommended to me by my advisor. And it was just one of those moments, Nico, you're sitting in class, you're talking about something, you kind of have that internal gut reaction, like, wow, this is something big. It's technology. It's existential. It's impacting everyone across the board. It's science, it's math, it's policy. And he was just a great professor. His name was, was Mickey Glantz. That really just kind of had me have that aha moment and said, I really want to explore kind of making a career in this. And I ended up going to him every day after class and saying, you know, I'd love to take an internship under you. I'd like to do some external studies and really just maybe that was my beginning of sales, but really just pushing in to say, how can we work together? I ended up getting approved with funding from the school and his group to take an internship really around exploring the potential collaboration between China and the U.S. to explore climate mitigation policies. Yeah, you explored climate mitigation policies and interned for a few notable organizations. You want to do some name dropping here on on some of the places that you worked early in your career from an intern perspective? So it's all a bit serendipitous in nature, but the kind of group at the university was called CCB or Consortium for Capacity Building. And it was actually funded not only by the school, but also by the Clinton Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation. So as I was looking to graduate and exiting my undergrad, you know, figured I had to have kind of some experience, some internships. So given that I'd already kind of indirectly received funding for my studies from the Clinton Foundation, ended up applying to a couple different internships there. And they run a really solid internship program where they bring around kind of 60 different interns in spring, fall, and summer in a lot of different areas of the organization. And I applied to a couple ones of interest. And one of the ones I saw was the executive office intern, which was really one intern per semester to really intern under him and his immediate staff. And I kind of said, no chance that I'll get it, right? That sounds like the coolest one out of all of them, but I applied. And, you know, for kind of layering in a bit of a travel story, since I changed majors so late, I needed an extra semester to graduate. So I walked in the spring and I actually went abroad for my final semester. Uh, which oh, is a great way to conclude college. Uh, exactly how I did it, by the way. We haven't talked about that, but that's exactly what I did. Yeah, there you go. Worked out, worked out great. Right? It's half education, half vacation and celebration of uh, completing undergrad. But I was actually traveling through Europe at the time of applying to internships. And I was at a hostel in Interlock in Switzerland when I got the call that they'd like to interview me for the executive office position. And I remember sitting on a bunk bed in this hostel, kind of locked <laughs> in a room, you know, staring at the outs outside the window interviewing for this executive office internship. And I was lucky enough to get it and intern under President Clinton and his immediate staff and really do some really cool things, you know, such as getting intimate knowledge of his office and a lot of the historical items that were in his office and giving tours to graduate students. I had the benefit of picking up his presidential line when the deputy director wasn't there, you know, learning a lot about the organization and a lot of the different verticals within the organization and, you know, really getting some really cool access to some very knowledgeable, some very smart people. And it was just a great experience, a great, you know, great way to really kind of cut my teeth coming out of school. 
What did you learn from Clinton and how he runs his organization that you feel you've infused into the organizations that you have become a part of? I think from a mission standpoint, you know, especially from a nonprofit, you know, how do you look at charity? How do you look at mission? How do you look at doing the right thing? How do you look at really exploring a lot of the different challenges within, you know, broader global issues, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you apply kind of a nonprofit strategy to that, right? Where you're relying on kind of donor money or, or external dollars to be successful in those endeavors. So I think really starting out from kind of a policy and nonprofit perspective, really gave me a personal inclination of mission and kind of where are you spending your time and how are you benefiting the world around you? You know, he's famously unbelievably good at remembering names. Did he ever teach you the tricks to the trade? I mean, you're in sales. That's something that we have to remember as salespeople. Did he teach you how to remember and anchor people's names? Because I've always wondered how and marveled how he and Hillary just are remarkable. It's one of their superpowers. I can't comment on the name retention, but one of the things that I really learned from him is having an internal monologue when public speaking, that when he is speaking, he's got this whole kind of agenda in his head, you know, and you think that he's kind of gone off topic and he's talking about something else. And then at the end of it, he's able to tie it back to the original message and kind of having that full agenda as you're going through a conversation. He was just such an expert public speaker that he's able to really kind of draw a story out of a conversation and link the disparate aspects of that conversation back together. And I think whenever you can use storytelling as a means of public speaking or communication, it just creates such a stronger resonation to the material being spoken. I love that. It's a huge lesson learned right there for uh, folks that are trying to think about how to tell their own story or their own startup. You know, he's a great politician and a even better philanthropist uh, for all of those reasons, right? He's able to tell the story. He's able to hold multiple narratives and tie them all back together. And one of the things that I've found through 300 plus interviews here on Suncast is the CEOs and executives that stand out in the industry are the ones that have a story for every moment. They can always tie it back. Even if it's the most, the simplest example, they are relatable in so much as they can conjure a story that fits the moment. And it's funny, you've probably experienced this having worked under some really dynamic CEOs and C-suite executives. You on their team are always kind of smacking your forehead going, not this story again, but it never misses in the dinner party, right? It's like the 50th time you've heard it and it creates, you know, this riotous laughter around the table. And you're like, here comes that story again. Here's the clownfish story again, right? (laughs) Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, I early on recognized about you, Zach, is that you have positioned yourself really well as someone who understands how to sell technology in a sales capacity and rise to leadership to help others understand that. How early in your career coming out of this, you know, internship where you were just trying to figure out policy and where you fit, you did not go to school for business uh, per se. How did you realize that sales and I'll say sales leadership was the path for you? So I didn't know what the path for me, to be honest, you know, it was kind of an organic career journey that took me to sales, you know, and fast forwarding a little bit from the Clinton Foundation, you know, I thought after doing the nonprofit side of things that I wanted to get into policy, I ended up getting accepted to a follow on internship with a company called Riverkeeper, which was actually run by RFK Jr. and was a clean water advocacy group in New York. Uh, and I really worked on policy related to fracking measures, not not in the sense of anti fracking, but 
how can you promote kind of safer policies and procedures around fracking? And it was another great experience, but it was very research heavy. You know, and after doing the Clinton Foundation internship and the Riverkeeper internship, although I liked kind of research and writing, I realized pretty quickly that I didn't want to do that from a career perspective. So kind of going back to school, you know, where I had an interest in kind of science and technology, I really kind of wanted to stay in that climate realm, but I wanted to get kind of more into the technology side of things. So I really kind of looked deep into renewable energy at that point and was really just looking for an opportunity to kind of work for a renewable energy company. And, you know, fast forward a little bit to Locus, I really can't even recall, Nico, how I found that job. It may have been on Craigslist, it may have been on Indeed. I don't remember, but... I was lucky enough to find a project manager, kind of entry-level position at Locus Energy. And ironically, during the interview process, one of the things that they told me, because it was going to be kind of a phone jockey type position, was that they really valued my picking up of the presidential's phone line, right, and talking to very senior people. And they showed me that that had a interpersonal kind of verbal communication skill set. And they actually told me quite literally that was one of the deciding factors in the role. Like many others, right, you kind of need that that entry opportunity to cut yourself in a new industry. Um, and I was lucky yeah. enough to be given a job at Locus. And, you know, I can go into more detail about how that really began my career journey. For those who aren't familiar, Locus is one of the now well-known monitoring companies that back, you know, when I was starting my own solar company in 2006, 2007 timeframe, wasn't even around. And if it was, it was just a, it was just a software idea when companies like Fat Spaniel were really owning the residential solar monitoring market. What does Locus represent for the marketplace? So I'd love to hear as the guy who ran sales VP for Locus and then sort of followed in uh, through the acquisition to also how you think or began to think about monitoring as a product and the importance of it in the marketplace. Yeah, so it's a very interesting journey, not just from a career standpoint, but as far as the evolution of modern technology within the space, right? I joined Locus in 2011. And at that time, you know, solar and other kind of distributed energy was just really starting to get installed at some level of higher capacity. The ability to actually visualize what was coming out of those facilities from a performance standpoint was kind of irrelevant, right? When I first started there, it wasn't about a matter of selling monitoring or visualization capability on top of PV systems. It was a, why do I need this conversation, right? The site's going to do what the site's going to do. The sun's going to shine. The, you know, the, the output's going to happen. And it was kind of this interesting progression from a, with actually a lot of similarities and correlation to kind of what we're seeing at ClearTrace today. But at first of like, why do I need this? I don't get it, right? Then going to the evolution of, okay, I, I see why I need this right? But maybe I don't need it today. Then, okay, this is becoming more commonplace and it's more, it's not as much about, do I need this or do I need to buy this, but who am I going to use? Right. And and then kind of the further evolution was, well, what are the differentiators as you start to get into more analytics or machine learning or some of the more, you know, kind of innovative stuff that comes on top. And that kind of, that full journey happened through my experience with Locus. You know, and what I did and what allowed me, I think, to be very successful in my career and kind of relating to where I found myself today, you know, is I started out as a technical resource at the company, right? So I was picking up the phone, I was taking support calls, support emails, and really kind of understanding both from a hardware and software standpoint, you know, what were the issues? And I should add as well, there was a dual flavor to Locus, both from a data acquisition perspective. So supplying the physical data acquisition boxes, you know, a lot into metering, data logging, cellular connections, data communications, and things like that. 
then utilizing that information to roll that up to a cloud application to actually visualize, you know, how well your portfolio is performing. And because of that, and this was super startup-y time, we were out of a, a shared midtown office space, you know, kind of precursor to WeWork called MicroOffice uh, with a bunch of different small companies in there. And I'd spend half the day kind of answering emails and picking up the phone. And then the other half of the day, actually building our data acquisition boxes. So when orders would come in, it was me and one of my other colleagues that would take the orders. We'd take a bunch of off-the-shelf equipment and we'd effectively put it in a box, configure the equipment, set all the Modbus addressing, do all the wiring. You know, no we were way. doing crimping and it was a, a funny story of it is, you know, people would walk by our little space and they'd see me and my colleague with these boxes with a bunch of wires hanging out and blow torches. And they're like, what the hell are those guys doing in that office? Seems a little bit sketchy. But the reality of it was I quite literally had my hands in the equipment every day. Right. Hmm. And the ability to actually learn and pick up the conceptual understanding of how this stuff works and also understand when it doesn't work, why really set me up to be a core knowledge kind of domain expert internally, because again, I was quite literally building it right every day. And I think that ability to really live it and not just support it really kind of changed the dynamic of my progression at the company. You know, and then as we began to progress into larger and larger projects, there became a a, a greater need for more of kind of an engineering skill set related to that. So I'm not an engineer by education, but I kind of became a locust engineer, if you will, or a data acquisition engineer, uh, just due to my kind of intimate knowledge with the product and the configuration. You know, and that ended up morphing into more kind of SCADA um, and control capabilities. And I ended up writing our first human machine interface, you know, went down to Florida and took an SEL RTAC class. What does that mean? I just, you just lost me. What does all that mean? Human interface, (laughs) you did what in Florida? Yeah, so an HMI is a human machine interface. So it's effectively uh-huh. a visual interface that allows you to interact with the equipment on site from a control standpoint. Uh-huh. So an example of that would be like breaker relay control. Right? How do you click a button and turn off a breaker? How do you issue a curtailment command? And then there's a visual kind of layer to that that allows more of a user experience around kind of doing those controls as opposed to just writing code. And one of the primary devices that we utilized for that was a uh, a device from Schweitzer Engineering Laboratories called, called an RTAC or real-time automation controller. So I went down to Florida and kind of learned how to write code for that product and built a lot of the visualization layers. And my process and responsibility was really scaling out the application engineering team to allow us to work with larger and more complex systems. Did you know code before this job? I did not. Learned it on the fly. When did it occur to you that that was something you should be doing and that that you would benefit from learning that and nobody else was grabbing it? Like, how did that happen? It's less, in that sense, it was less out of self-direction, more out of necessity. Um, I think up to a certain point, our engineering team had been writing those. Um, And it was more kind of a hardware focus and on the engineering side, and they wanted Mm -hmm. to focus on what engineers do, which was software coding. So they looked to transition some of the device templating, which was really a matter of just digging into Modbus maps of inverters and meteorological yeah. equipment and, and meters and effectively learning how to translate those Modbus maps into a, a, a data reading capability. And Got then it. there's a level beyond that, which is rather than just reading, how do you enable read-write functionality? How do you write mm-hmm. a code that submits a command to a specific register that tells the device to do something, whatever that may be? So what's interesting that I want you to hear about this story I think from a high level perspective is that Zach, like most sales guys, gets an opportunity to participate in an early stage startup 
he sees gaps that need filling. He's got a lot of curiosity and interest. And by taking on additional responsibility, additional and doing well, additional responsibility was given him. You eventually rose to be VP of sales for Locus, and then Locus was acquired by Also, which is a big competitor in the industry. Where did you, at that time, start to see gaps in the macro environment? Not like the nuts and bolts of how the boxes work, but in the macro environment around where what the market understood or did not understand about what you guys were trying to do. Yeah. So um, to kind of leverage the story of answering that question of how I got to the sales side, I kind of reached my ceiling in application engineering without going back to school and getting a degree. Prior to the Also Energy merger, Locus was actually uh, fully acquired by Genscape in September of 2015. Mm-hmm. And post that acquisition, some of our senior leadership went on to bigger and better things. And it opened up an opportunity for me at the right time to move over to the sales side. So right. that's effectively how that flip happened. Okay. And the reason I kind of give that background is because I think the ability to view macro trends was a helpful way in looking at the technology problem and how the technology worked to then applying it to selling and customer solutions and what the market was seeing. You know, and I think from a macro approach to your question, there was a big issue just around data, data access, validity of the information. And then how do you create a kind of data ecosystem or data ecosystem around that information, right? So one of the really cool things about Locus is we were the creators of that first party data and information, right? We were supplying the hardware and really the origination of that data was coming to fruition, you know, through our selling of equipment and then rolling that up to a cloud interface. And then as the market really began to diverge, you know, there was this difference. I think everything kind of got thrown into an O&M bucket, right? It was like performance, operations, maintenance, site visits, cleaning of panels, it all kind of got thrown into O&M. And I think as the market matured, we started to see this decoupling of the O and the M, right? really kind of focusing on operational efficiency, which is where the software really came into play. And then you start to see this um, diversification of monitoring, of technical asset management, of financial asset management, of CMMS and work order management. Whereas the initial monitoring providers like Locus, like also Draker, you know, they were all kind of focusing just on monitoring as, as a broader bundle. And as the market matured, we started to see the specialization of specific focus areas, right? Where it wasn't just about data collection and visualization, but it was about how are you then utilizing that data set for broader responsibilities. What I'm perennially curious about is how people make decisions in their career and how folks like yourself find themselves continually on the right side of startup success, acquisitions, et cetera, right? One of the fun things that I get to do is follow friends like you in the industry who make seemingly indirect jumps to new companies and and then watch those succeed as well. And I think that success uh, leaves clues. And so I try to follow those clues. One of the things that I've seen from you time and time again is the ability to apply your technical knowledge to an increasing sales acumen understand how to sell a product by understanding what the customer is actually looking for. I'd like to, within that context, prime a little bit a better understanding before we get into switch X, a better understanding of what you may have gleaned from your years selling the technology uh, at Locus and also that you might be able to pass along to us, right? Like what are the typical things that from your perspective are important to understand about technical sales, in particular product sales when it's a as you pointed out, a product that maybe folks don't initially think is a needed 
technology. Uh, it's not the inverter. It's not going to make everything run better in, implicitly. What have you learned about sales that helps you get that sale across the finish line? Yeah, I think one of the big things initially is the difference between selling and problem solving. And in some ways, they're always linked. But I think when you're, especially in a software product, right, when you're trying to just sell something because it does X, Y, Z, and you're not orienting the product to the actual problems it's solving, you know, then you're kind of just another salesman, right? And kind of going back to the technical background by truly understanding the customer problem. How are they going to utilize the solution in order to fix their issue or make their life easier or solve a problem internally or save costs or reduce risk? So, you know, when I think about sales, I break it down into kind of three parts. Like, what is the technology and what does it do? What is the feature functionality as a result of using that technology? And ultimately, what is the value proposition and problem you're solving? And I think if you're able to kind of look at things in those three groups, then you're able to kind of be an end-to-end solution salesperson, right? Because you're able to talk to the technology, the functionality. And uh, I think another related point is when you're selling, who are the different groups you're engaging? I think when you're selling software, you're engaging, you know, sales groups, customer-facing, IT, technology, C-suite. And all of these groups are going to have different kind of reasons for uh, why they may want to use the product or why they may want to discount it. Um, so I think being able to truly understand the technology, what does it unlock, right, from a feature functionality standpoint, and then what ultimately is the value proposition or problem you're solving. And I think if you can kind of navigate that story across those three areas and really align it with the different audience you're talking to, and tr- again, truly understand your audience, that you're not talking to just a company, you're talking to a specific group within a company, and you're talking to a specific user within that company. And you really need to take the time to orient who is that user? What is the hierarchy of that user or individual inside the company, inside a specific group within the company? And then what are the broader company goals? When you and I reconnected late 2020, I had not realized that you had left Locus. And I think maybe I'd seen your name on the announcement of the rebrand for SwitchX to ClearTrace, which I had reached out and said I thought was a brilliant brand uh, as a as a brand guy i love i love the the reimagining of that brand but you know carbon accounting might not quite be a dinner table topic to quote one of your press releases but we know that the pressure of climate change and especially in the biden administration the pressure on in particular folks building policy around climate tech and building climate tech to solve problems there's increasing pressure at the retail level to actually be able to say, yeah, but what does this all mean? How, how do we know that what we're actually investing in is giving us any benefit at all? So I want to kind of try to draw a connect the dots here between your experience on the tech side, your understanding of the fundamental aspect of measuring the efficiency output and uh, efficacy of a solar array and how that now helps the world, us, helps uh, a business like ClearTrace with this really nebulous idea up to now of carbon accounting. Can you talk to me about leaving also and finding SwitchX and what that sort of looked like for you as a career switch? Yeah. And I see you're also learning as we are the uh, artist formerly known as SwitchX, now ClearTrace. You know, one of the very interesting correlations to my past experience was in the monitoring, in my monitoring career and at Locus and also Energy, it was really all about maximizing and squeezing the most possible output out of that system, right? By knowing what it should be producing and really kind of understanding the performance of it. And moving over to the clear trace side, it's sort of about everything that happens after those electrons are produced, right? How are they utilized from a power purchase standpoint or from a transparency or tracking standpoint? 
but to take a step back as far as kind of how I found myself here, you know, I spent my entire career prior to this in the monitoring space. And as you know, the energy sector overall is just going through such a transition. And as someone that always enjoyed and understood the technology, I always kind of followed a lot of the media trends and evolutions happening within the market. I became very interested in a lot of the progressions around blockchain and energy applications, decentralization in the energy sector, peer-to-peer trading, transactive energy, you know, and just one of those things that you looked at and you read about it, you know, and you saw the examples of the neighborhood solar panels transacting with the neighbor that didn't. And you're just like, that's really cool, right? That's innovative. You see the application, whether it's early or not, I was able to see some really cool trends happening within the market. And I saw an opportunity to leverage a lot of my knowledge that I learned in the monitoring space and really wanted to take that full journey and experience that I had kind of going, you know, cradle to grave in a startup life cycle and really had the opportunity to go into more of a senior leadership position for a small and growing startup. So I did my diligence and really looked across the sector and was pretty familiar with a lot of the different companies that kind of filled those different subjects that I outlined. And was lucky enough, actually, through my time at Locus, by having a mutual customer, um, actually in JP Morgan, that I'd won on the Locus side, uh, got an email from them and say, hey, we're, we're looking at this potential pilot with this company called Switch, which, by the way, I'd already known about. Um, we'd like you to integrate with them. Uh, and that allowed me to uh, get to know the initial founders and executive staff pretty well and just kind of cultivated a relationship from there. Um, and from that point, ended up joining the team full time about six months after that point. Fantastic. The importance of building those relationships because you just never know where one phone call can lead. So important. That's so right. critical. Help me understand what carbon accounting means, why you would leave the confines of your comfy New York life to go to Austin to take on this new <laughs> venture. Not that Austin's a bad thing. Obviously, it's now uh, you, your, your move proved very uh, fortuitous and insightful. I'm sure your property has tripled in value since Elon and uh, many others have said they're moving there. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I'm renting right now, which is a different story. I'm sure you uh, and I can have over a beer. But yeah, I'm sure we could talk all day about New York versus Austin and the kind of massive surge of people coming in here. But, you know, as far as carbon accounting, I think it'd be best if I kind of highlight a couple trends that we saw and then relate that back to why are we focusing on carbon accounting? The, the core trends that we saw happening in the market was firstly kind of relating back to my locus experience, but the proliferation of new technology, right, which included IoT, AMI, smart metering infrastructure, coupled with distributed cloud computing, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and blockchain. Really just to say that in order for us to be successful, there had to be an advancement in data collection and data access. So it was a very important trend around all the processing access to that data and information to allow us to do what we do. Second was the trend into corporate sustainability and ESG, right, with a heavy focus on public mandates associated with decarbonization and use of renewable energy, resulting in massive power purchase agreements and competitive retail energy supply and all different type of product offerings for greater demand of just access to clean and, and sometimes locally sourced renewable energy. Third was looking at kind of new regulation and policy, right, that was putting pressure either through carrot or stick approaches to really push companies to decarbonize or utilize renewable energy. And then fourth is a really new one, but this concept of kind of trusted data systems, system of record. So we really looked across a lot of those different trends and said, what's going to be the problem here, right? In reality, the problem is data. And how do you use data to actually prove and comply that you've done what you said you were going to do? 
So carbon accounting is a core part of the story, right? As all of these companies are being tasked with uh, either through regulation or just with their own efforts to not only decarbonize, but to prove it, to show it, to highlight it. So Clear Trace is really in this focus area of how do we leverage kind of asset grade, telemetry, uh, metering type information, you know, drive all that into a consolidated view to kind of create a single source of truth, a single source of record, and then marry that with related accounting requirements for how companies are not only utilizing this information internally, but attaching it to a given accounting framework or disclosing that information for public use. So we really see an opportunity to be that stamp of validation, that that kind of credence to the information that allows a company to stand behind their claims and give them that corporate-related attestation that I didn't only say I was going to do it, but here's how I prove it. So what comes to mind as I hear you explaining that are the companies I've talked to who do our REC, Renewable Energy Credit Registries, right? ways that you can account once for the use of a registered renewable energy credit somewhere in the world and and try to ensure that it's not double used and there's not greenwashing around these wrecks and that a utility or someone else didn't sell it and then try to claim it on their own balance sheet as well. How is this different from from that? How is wreck registration and carbon accounting different or similar, just for those who might be thinking in their minds as well? Yeah. I mean, at face value, what is a REC, Nico, right? It's, it's a paper certificate that gives you ownership rights over one megawatt hour of energy produced being connected to some renewable energy facility, right? And the reality of this kind of huge trend in the corporate sustainability and attachment to a broader goal around 100% renewable energy is, hey, well, there's all these RECs out there, right? Why don't I just go out and buy them? And the energy attributed to those wrecks, as long as it offsets my consumption, then cool, I'm 100% renewable. And I think people are realizing pretty quickly that that's not good enough. And in some cases, it's even borderline greenwashing, right? Buying buying a wreck from a wind farm in Texas and settling it on behalf of your load in New York, it isn't truly decarbonizing that load, right? It's just spending money to take a certificate and effectively attribute it to that load. So... On top of that, there's also a lot of issues with RECs that you outlined. A lot of times they're bundled, so it lacks the actual originating source of the information. They're mostly tied to a specific vintage year, you know, as opposed to a given day or month. And like you noted, there's no way to really prove that. How have they not been double counted? How are they authentic? How, how can you prove it hasn't been double sold? And the short answer is you can't. So we kind of went back to basics and said, okay, well, a REC is one megawatt hour of energy produced. We're attaching to all this real-time generation. So why don't we use some of this new cool technology that we're leveraging from a tech stack? And every time a site produces one megawatt hour of energy, let's turn that into a digital rec or what we call a digital twin to a rec. And in that process, we're also bundling a lot of the core information to that that is usually lost in the typical compliant rec or voluntary rec process. So including the source, the time, the location, the environmental characteristics directly to that record. You know, I, I like to use the analogy of we're creating kind of a digital birth certificate for every one megawatt hour of energy produced, right? And as companies are looking to utilize those recs and understand, well, what is also the emissions impact of purchasing that renewable energy credit? Because as you know, one megawatt hour produced from a renewable facility in New York is very different from that produced in a conventional power heavy grid in the South, right? They're not equivalent. You can't count them as the same. So the ability to really allow each each digital asset that we call it to stand on its own and be unique from its counterparts 
gives more credence to that one megawatt hour because it is specific to that site, it's specific to that time of day, it's going to have its own unique attributions from an environmental characteristic standpoint. And as you're looking to retire or settle those on behalf of a corporation, you're then attaching all the core information that you need to actually give more proof behind what is this wreck actually doing for my business. All right, so you've got Salesforce for your sales team. How's that working out for you? How great would it be if someone could actually just come in and really make your whole solar sales process deliver results? And what's more, what if you could actually see all the sales data in one dashboard? Pipeline, forecast, aging, deals that are about to close, the whole darn thing. Look, I have someone who can help do all that. They're called Indium. And right now, for a limited time, you can get a Salesforce tune-up, a process assessment from them entirely on the house. Just click on the Indium logo over at mysuncast.com and start getting more value from Salesforce finally. You know, it's the time of year where folks start moving around from business to business, job to job, career transition is at its peak. And it's often a time where folks look to someone else to help organize their thoughts and guide their principles. I've spent the last 15 years in renewables. I've spent the last five years coaching founders and startup executives in this space specifically. And for the last year, I've been helping folks transition out of oil and gas and other industries into renewables. And I've found that there are a few things that are commonalities. I'd like to invite you, if that sounds like something you're interested in, to have a conversation with me about whether or not coaching might be in your future and working with me might be something that would help level up your business or your personal career path. You can fill out an application over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the work with me button in the very top right. And everyone who fills out an application, I'm going to set up a 15 minute clarity call. So I'd invite you to run, fill that out. If this sounds remotely interesting to you and let's have a chat, see if there is in fact a fit. I look forward to chatting soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Suncast. Let me know if I can help you in other ways. Is there an underlying market trend driving the need for like tech innovation around settling these carbon accounts? I'll amplify that by asking whether like, is this something that is traceability as a, is a concern and are there future market revenue opportunities like I'm reading between the lines here, you suggesting that perhaps a wreck generated in a dirty coal south is somehow more valuable than a wreck generated in a clean economy, California. You didn't say that. I'm just, I'm trying to intuit, like, how does the general population care that this, that this matters to folks like Brookfield and JP Morgan and big, big companies that have lots of, uh, of wrecks floating around? Yeah. So I think... We've seen this very interesting trend happen from the private sector that outside of regulations forcing them to do so, they're going to decarbonize and they're going to do what's better for the world right? by being more renewable or driving decarbonization internally. And this has kind of created this inherent kind of gamification or competition against companies to really do what is going to kind of one up the next one. right? And we saw this with first kind of 100% renewable energy claims and then carbon neutrality claims. You know, companies like Microsoft going carbon negative, and most recently companies like Google looking to match every hour of consumption with a renewable or clean resource. This driving 
forced from the private sector to keep going further, right, to keep progressing the problem, I think is really starting to land on this concept of 24-7. Because again, every hour of the day is unique. The emissions impact on the grid every single hour is different from the previous hour or hour following. So the, the need to be able to characterize that information for what is actually happening right now. Again, how do I look at the specific circumstance that's happening intraday and relate a strategy to it? And I think we are seeing this shift happen really to this concept of 24-7, right? How do I match every hour of consumed energy or every dirty one megawatt hour with a clean resource? And as you were noting, the emissions impact or carbon intensity is really relative to the ratio of clean power to conventional power on the grid at any given time, right? So as you look at a state like Washington that has a ton of hydropower, it's going to be a much cleaner grid. So renewable penetration doesn't have as much of a carbon avoidance impact as opposed to somewhere in the South that is, you know, heavy coal, heavy nat gas, whatever it may be, that each penetration of renewable energy is going to have a much larger impact. So that all needs to be taken into account when you're leveraging these resources and being able to, again, not only roll it up to a broader accounting infrastructure, but really be able to account on a more near real-time basis while leveraging both renewable energy and carbon, foot- carbon footprinting requirements. It's so interesting because we're we're trying at a macro level as an industry to get to how do we actually account for a zero carbon grid along with that while in the absence of leadership from governance or from utilities, retail customers like Google and Microsoft and Amazon uh, are stepping in, taking charge because it makes economic sense to offset their huge data center footprint with renewable power. The macro question for those who even are retail investors in those companies ought to be, well, how do I even know, how do I validate and audit that what they're claiming is true? We've all heard greenwashing for two decades around sustainability initiatives and goals. So if these corporations have these publicly stated corporate mandates connected to renewable energy and reducing emissions, how do we actually audit that? And it sounds like companies like ClearTrace and technology innovation around this is, is the answer to that. Yeah. And for purposes of this question, I'm going to start to throw the word blockchain in. And I know that can you know, <laughs> okay. greatly divert the focus of the conversation. But as a company, and it's an important point to make, we are not a blockchain company. Blockchain is part of our tech stack. right? We're not building our own blockchain. Rather, we're leveraging blockchain for the core capabilities it provides in the forms of immutability, cryptography, permissioning of data, smart contracts, wallet infrastructure, public and private keys. And it's a whole kind of new set of features, right? That wasn't possible unless working kind of with the blockchain tech stack. And when you're talking about validation, this is where kind of the immutability of the ledger comes in, right? How do you know for sure that that record is intact and hasn't been changed, is cryptographically secure, is encrypted? So our ability to really manage and help drive critical energy and environmental information to a ledger type function so that auditors, investors, the public can really see that information. It is really building this immutable audit trail behind claims, right? So it's not only attaching data to a claim, but how do you actually explore the audit trail behind it? And that's one of the cool things that blockchain allows us to do. The immutability and traceability of transactions written on blockchain technology is one of the great features and benefits that I see of, of the blockchain boom that we've seen in the last five years plus. It's funny to me, a lot of folks inadvertently connect blockchain with cryptocurrency just because cryptocurrency leverages blockchain technology for the purpose of, of 
creating traceable assets and decentralized assets. I don't want to get too far afield from the topic, which is tied to blockchain here of 24-7 load matching. How does your technology enable 24-7 load matching with renewables and get us to this carbon-free power uh, claim? And, and why do companies that are investing in your technology, like I mentioned, Brookfield and JP Morgan, why do they care about that? It's a great question. So for why do they care about it? I think folks realize that this concept of 24-7 is the real way to really confirm 100% renewable energy policy. Because again, if you're doing it on a monthly or annual basis, you're really just using blended averages. Yeah, and those averages may net out to 100%, but it's not the right way to do it, right? Due to the variability in emissions and the grid makeup at any given time. So I think folks realize to do this correctly and to truly state their claims, moving to more of an intraday model is the right way to go. Now, as far as how we do it, um, we really look at kind of three things that are happening at any given time. Energy being generated, energy being consumed, and ultimately what is happening on the grid. You know, and as a company, a lot of the a lot of our team comes from a deep background in wholesale energy trading, commodities markets, investment banking, which we bring this kind of depth of expertise from the energy system to the sustainability and ESG problem, which I think kind of differentiates us and makes us unique. But what we do effectively is we leverage a lot of the real-time like metering and DAS and telemetry data coming off of generation facilities. And then we also integrate with the near real-time consumption information, either working with building management systems or permissioning utility smart meter data through Green Button Connect and other programs. Um, so that gives us this near real-time view of when is energy being generated and when is it being consumed. That's half the battle. The next thing, though, is how do you actually look at the physical scheduling and delivery of that energy into the grid? Right, Because it's not just about when is it generated, but when is it actually being delivered to the specific zone or the specific feeder where my client has load. So as we're looking at when energy is generated, when it's consumed, we're actually working with our partners to get both the public and private ISO-related information so we can actually see the schedules and bids and the physical syncing into a specific ISO or zone. And if you're able to conceptualize and visualize those three pieces, you're able to really unlock this concept of load matching, which is when is it generated? When was it physically connected to the zone in which my customer has assets? And then when was that energy consumed? And by linking all those into a hourly standard, we're able to highlight at any given time, how renewable are you? And by bundling the related emissions information to that same record, we can unlock the additional thing of what is your carbon footprint at the same time. Uh So is that ultimately the goal? It's to be able to establish a concrete answer for what is your carbon footprint? I think that's the first goal. It's really kind of solved the data problem, right? How do you allow data to give you that attestation for answering the question of what is my carbon footprint? What is my percentage renewable energy? But then I think the next step is, you know, if you are not there or if you're not looking to be there on a forecasted basis, well, then what do you do, right? How do you enable further decision-making? How do you connect market participants? How do you enable companies to de-risk themselves from not meeting their claims and help create more of a market access opportunity for them to do the things they need to do to meet their claims? Yeah, you've said customer a couple of times. So I, for, for, I think that someone out there, as well as myself, is saying, well, who is your customer? We've thrown a bunch of names out there, but who's your customer in the context of like who you're building this product for? Yeah, so we've kind of, at least on my side, evangelized two sales models, one in a B2B and one in a B2B2C. In the B2B, we've been targeting you know, corporations, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies 
that have public related claims that at add are a bit more aggressive, right? So not these claims that are 30 years out in 2050, but are looking to take some action within the next 10 years. We're also finding that on the corporate side, companies that have a digital transformation strategy in place, or at least planning around it is somewhat key because they need to understand the importance of where their data is going and how it can be accessed. Then also corporates that tend to have an innovative flavor to them, right? See, see a desire to be innovative, like the idea of, of being a first mover or evangelizing new technology. And then I'll add as well, under the corporate umbrella, we have a heavy focus on real estate. Firstly, just due to the emissions makeup of CRE or the commercial real estate sector. And secondly, due to a lot of the new regulation being put on the commercial real estate sector to decarbonize, such as Local on 97 in New York, which is taking more of a stick approach by finding real estate companies by not hitting certain emission thresholds. And then on the flip side of things, we employ more of a B2B2C model by bundling our technology with a renewable energy supply by working with retailers and escrows and competitive energy suppliers. And it's a really interesting play for us because it gives us more of a network effect, right? Rather than me selling to just one corporate, I'm able to work with a supplier and ultimately sell through to all of their customers. And we're finding a lot of interest, not only in the core product on the downstream side or working directly with corporates, but this ability to really bundle an actual renewable energy supply with the traceability and load matching solution uh, there seems to be a lot of interest and resonation to that. Can you give me an example of this B2BC? Because this is, uh, I'm not sure I understood it from that explanation. Yeah. So one example would be Brookfield Renewables, right? They have a, a retail arm, significant amount of hydropower in New York, and they are able to deliver that to current customers such as JP Morgan. And ClearTrace is the technology in between that enables this concept of 24-7 load matching. So effectively, Brookfield is able to build a green supply book. They're able to look at JP Morgan's load, right? Since we're able to ingest all of JPMC's consumption information on a near real-time basis. And then we're able to feed that back to Brookfield, who can then not only better hedge their supply because they're not using kind of stale monthly load forecasts, but they're actually getting better insights into real-time load on a historical real-time and forecasted basis. And then all of that goes to ClearTrace to ultimately link that generation load and prove out for JP Morgan that Brookfield is meeting their contractual obligation for delivery of green electrons. I marvel at the work on your desk as head of sales because the biggest problem I perceive that you have is the access gate, right? How do you actually get customers to allow you to have permission access their data? You can build a great mousetrap but if you can't get behind their meter and see what their facilities are doing, then you can't provide that value to Brookfield. So how have you been able to crack that nut? That's something that I have to believe is, you know, uh, one of the core issues or headaches for you and from a sales perspective. Yeah, no doubt. And it's, it's one of our challenges, to be honest, you know, and it's why I went back to an earlier comment around one of the trends that had to happen to make us successful, right? Which is, smart metering and IoT becoming more commonplace, right? And wrapping things like 5G and more ability to actually pull that real-time information. You know, and we're seeing more and more utilities not only put specific investments into smart metering deployment, but we're also seeing more and more companies putting investment into building management systems, building optimization systems, energy efficiency. The reality is a lot of the data is already out there. It's just not being capitalized on. You know, and one of the benefits of our solution is that we're typically doing more top-down selling, right? Climate is such a critical issue 
in this industry. And climate risk is such a critical issue in this industry. And you can look at any of Larry Fink's recent articles to to feel the pressure that is being put on these companies to not only decarbonize, um, but to also really conceptualize and report on their climate risk. So a lot of companies realize that you know data is needed. And I like to use the mantra of you can't manage what you can't measure. Uh, and ultimately, you can't measure what you can't meter. Um, and I think companies realize the importance of that, that you need meter collection-based systems to gather this information. And if I'm able to be successful in a top-down selling approach and convince the C-suite, how not only is this going to be a, a uh, peace of mind solution for them, because it's de-risking the, the risk associated with greenwashing, but it's also driving economic ability by being able to look at energy use, uh, consumption reduction, emissions reduction. And I think one of our goals more broadly is not only doing sustainability or ESG because companies need to do it, but how do you monetize that? How does it become an economic driver in the organization? But taking it back, it's it's a challenge, Nico. Um, I think it depends on what type of digital transformation strategies in place, what programs in certain states, such as Green Button Connect or Smart Meter Texas, are in place, and then what is the level of sophistication from a building management or energy efficiency standpoint for us to access that data. There's the reach around where you can potentially access the data even at arm's length. But I think that coming from your background at also and Locus, you are, uh, and we haven't talked about this, so, uh, lest someone think that I'm trying to set you up for, for understanding, like we we're just exploring topics here and things are coming to mind for me, but it seems to me like companies, I'll point out like Schneider, Schneider in Europe is teeing up basically matching PPA partners with projects. And like, they just made this announcement uh, that I saw on LinkedIn with Velux. Velux is a big manufacturer in Europe. They're now big um, signed on to PPAs. And it occurs to me that you can have partnerships as you no doubt did uh, at, at Locus and also where you can essentially ride through on these Trojan horses of technology with Schneider and others into these facilities, right? Like I, I'm even thinking uh, like, you know, one of our our sponsor for the entirety of last year, Extensible Energy, their entire business is getting inside to meter what's happening and and manage demand and uh, manage controls in these buildings. That for me feels like that B to B to C piece of your business, if that's what I'm understanding. So the B to B kind of structure of our business is the ability to sell our solution through an energy supplier to their customers. Right. So rather than just B2B, we're ultimately working with the customers of the company we're working with. I think where you were touching on is kind of more of a partnership strategy, right? Which is one side of the coin would be, you know, I go and sell a JP Morgan or any type of big corporation and they say, great, we love it. Uh, we're going to go and mandate the solution to our other technology partners, right? Which is one side of it. Or, you know, I have a strategic partnership, software partnership type strategy, right? To work with the companies or the OEMs that are actually managing or operating that equipment. So it's always a thought of mind where we want to be selling and we want to be selling to the individuals and companies that have influenced to mandate the use of the product. But at the same time, how do we make that whole process easier? Um, and you know this from my background at Locus, but you know, how do we enable more plug and play functionality, right? How does a system go in the ground or inside a building and really create an easier means to drive that data into our system. So, you know, I'm always thinking about, and we're always thinking about where does our data come from? How do we make it easier? How do we make it more efficient? And ultimately where are things going, right? We can't just be focused on what's happening right now, but what is this gonna look like in a year? You know, how do we get ahead of that? How do we think strategically and be future looking? 
which actually is a great segue to a question that I want to ask around the current administration. Obviously, we're all effervescent with hope for the next four years in the Biden administration. Where do you see the need for technology like ClearTrace uh, under the Biden administration and the expansion that we expect of clean energy in the coming years? Yeah, it's something that's very exciting for us because I think irregardless of what type of federal regulation or policy they enact, you know, we're playing right in that kind of sphere. And kind of as I touched on earlier, you know, the first thing that happened was the private sector, you know, taking their responsibility to do their part, right? And really kind of have internal goals around decarbonization and renewable energy use. The second was really seeing spot market regulation or policy, right? Such as local on 97 specifically in New York, right? Kind of one spot market, one jurisdiction. And I think the next big question is what's going to happen on the federal level, right? Whether there's a carbon tax or a cap and trade program or whatever it may be. You know, I think for us, we want to play a core part of that. And I think the other thing that we expect to occur, whether it's jurisdictional or federal or, you know, on a global level is what is going to be the approach? Is it going to be a stick approach or is it going to be a carrot approach, right? Local on 97 is a stick approach. You're, you're finding people for not doing what they're doing. And as a result, they're going to take action. I think I'm very interested to see what type of carrot approaches in the form of incentives roll out, right? Rather than finding people or taxing people, how do you incentivize people to do their thing? So I'm very curious what type of inventive policy is going to grow out of the next four years, not only on the, you know, by the administration level, but also at the state level, right? Or city level. I think there's a lot of, a lot of opportunity to do some very cool things from a political standpoint about how you incentivize or cause people to do the things they need to do to protect our planet and protect the environment. Well, Zach, I definitely concur with you that this is, it feels like it's really good timing for companies like ClearTrace who uh, had the fortuitous insight to build this kind of technology, expecting that things like carbon markets are going to exist and that traceability just doesn't really exist at the technology level. So kudos on on that. I'm, I'm curious as well, back to sort of our, our initial discussion around your personal career and journey, as you have taken on you know, additional responsibility in a, in a new segment of, uh, of uh, sort of a tangential segment of industry that doesn't directly tie back to what you did in your previous job. Has there been anything that you've particularly utilized as a, as an asset or a resource from a learning perspective? We love to be, we're infinite learners here on Suncast. I'm curious what resources you tap into to get smarter on this, this new role that you have. I'm also curious at a macro level, if there are any particular books uh, that you uh, have found particularly useful in your, just your personal professional career growth? Yeah. So selfishly, when I left Locust, I figured, oh, I've, you know, lived this industry. I kind of get, you know, get monitoring and get everything that people are doing with the data. And, and I was so wrong, right? Kind of this whole market of everything that's happening after, right? And really getting into more of the ISO and carbon and power purchase agreements and energy efficiency and building management systems. It ended up being such a huge blessing in disguise, right? Because I'm sure as you would agree, you know, always be learning, always be doing something that's challenging, always be expanding your your mental domain and knowledge and and network. And I think that's the first thing that I'd say is such value and power in network, right? Being able to have folks in such different industries or such different areas of an industry that you can call up and have a conversation with, right? It's not only about network to sell, it's about network for knowledge. And I think I've been able to really capitalize on the fact that I spent half of my career being more on the engineering side and knowing a lot of folks on that side of the coin and then moving more to the sales side. 
And the ability for me to think about a problem and immediately think of someone who I can call and talk to about it has been so invaluable. I'd also say just reading, right? I mean, the internet is the internet. There's just so much information out there. Um, and I try to spend as much time or start my day with, with reading, right? And I've both a, a Feedly setup for my RSS feeds to get me relevant articles. But I'd actually say what has been more successful, which kind of goes back to the network comment, is really LinkedIn, right? Like if you really cultivate the correct network and connections on LinkedIn, well, then all of a sudden, all the, the articles and reference points that are coming on LinkedIn on your homepage are very applicable to what you're interested in, right? So, you know, I, I, I think of it kind of like a, almost Pandora in a sense, right? Where it's like, you know, you, 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 you like the music that you like, so the music coming back to you is things you only like. Well, if you connect with all the right people, then all of a sudden what's showing up on your homepage is everything that you really care about. How much time do you spend on Feedly and on LinkedIn day to day? Uh, I try to get 30 minutes, to be honest. Of each or combined? Combined, at least, right? Because in sales in a startup where I'm an army of one at the moment, you know, my calendar does not allow for too much free time. So I try to get in early, you know, work my brain a little bit, read about what's going on, kind of think about new talking points that I can leverage from reading the things that I'm reading about and try to just have the commitment to read when I can right in my free time. But it's it's a huge balance generally in, in startup life of answering emails, taking phone calls, you know, doing things that have the internal benefit of, of building out the sales organization and doing things that have personal benefit, right? Like reading and gaining knowledge. What time of the day do you typically find that you're trying to squeeze in the 30 minutes for LinkedIn and, and RSS feeds? Usually in the morning, right? Because I've had my morning coffee and my brain's most awake and I'm not thinking about the million other things that are happening over the course of the day. So I think so having central that time, kind of, is that I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you really quickly, but your central time, I'm being actually very tactical because I'm trying to think about, well, when, if I'm publishing content, when is Zach most likely to see it? Is it 7am or 9am? Depends on the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fair enough. Some people are uh, in a routine that let at eight 30 every morning, they sit down with their coffee and they're reading LinkedIn. So I'm just wondering if you fall in that camp or if it's like, I, I start my day and it's usually, you know, sometime in that broad range or just yeah, trying to see. I, I, I'd say usually between eight and nine, you know, and you bring up yeah. another kind of interesting point around just sales and marketing, right? Is, you know, you're dealing with people across time zones. You want to create content curation that gets in their inbox or gets in their LinkedIn feed at the right time. You know, and these are all things you got to think about, right? Is, you know, when are you going to have the most eyes or most thoughts on some piece of content you're creating? It's not just about producing it, but it's about strategizing around the actual digestion of that material. Is there any particular book that you have gifted or that has influenced the way you think about the world? Yeah, I'll give a couple examples, kind of both on the business side and then on the personal side. On the business side, huge fan of, of Shoe Dog and Phil Knight's story with Nike. Yeah. That was one where, again, kind of going back to an earlier comment around storytelling, you know, being able to storytell an entrepreneurial journey and relate it back to a lot of the things that you go through in your own entrepreneurial journey. It was just a great story. And there was so much relation to things that I saw kind of in my career and the growth trajectory of a startup. I'm also a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell. You know, I really love Outliers and Blank. You know, I think any book, or really just anything that can cause you to really look internally and increase self-awareness of how you're treating from an emotional, physical, or mental state of any given situation is something that I really enjoy, you know, especially being in a fast-paced environment. I think being able to step back and, you know, take a second, ask 
you know, why am I excited? Why am I stressed? Why am I unhappy? And being able to relate that to a broader strategy, you know, for kind of my own growth and success. And then what I'd say on the personal side, uh, first thing, I'm a big sci-fi nerd. So Dune, as well as Stranger in a Strange Land are, are two of my favorite books um, on the sci-fi side. And then also uh, kind of going back to, to undergrad, A Portrait of the Artist of, as a Young Man by James Joyce. I read in college kind of at that transitional point when I was really kind of changing majors. And it was just kind of one of those stories that really resonated with me as well. You know, and, and all those books, whether business or personal related, they all have relation to, you know, business or personal matters. Beyond reading and taking time every morning to curate talking points through vis-a-vis sort of education on LinkedIn and Feedly, is there a habit or consistent daily practice that you feel has given you particular impact and leverage in your work? A couple things. I mean, it's probably one of my, you know, like in an interview process, people would say like, what are the things you need to improve upon? Time management, right? And, and multitasking and thinking about where you're spending your time, you know, especially when your calendar is pretty much full all day of meetings, right? Really being conscious of, you know, kind of a competing balance in my head, right? Which is me as a person, I like to take every meeting I can, right? Even if I know it's something that doesn't have a use for me, I want to cultivate those relationships. I want to create that network. I want to take advantage of the situation. At the same time, balancing the fact that I'm one individual on a fast growing startup that I need to use my time wisely and trying to really just think about those two things, right? Where, you know, you want to be taking advantage of meeting new people, having conversations, introducing both yourself as an individual and as a company, as an individual representing that company, but also making sure that you're getting shit done, right? Like you have to have time management. There has to be efficiency in your time. Um, and I think for me, it's, it's less something that I'm good at, more something that I'm conscious. I try to think about and really look at my schedule and say, where am I spending my time and how is this benefiting me and the broader organization? Is that something that you do as a routine part of your schedule? And I'll, I'll hark back to, I think it was episode 300. We had Adam James back on and he specifically spoke to how he organizes his week on Sunday night and he sits down on Monday morning and he, he structures exactly how he's going to think about his week. And he has a specific amount of time set aside for serendipitous meetings. He'll take one or two and think like, have you structured it in your calendar that way? Not so much, you know, and I think I like just, I like some level of disorganization chaos because it's more fun mm, to be honest. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't like, you know, between this hour and this hour, I'm working on this thing. I think it's more about here's my week here are the things I need to execute on this week, but also having both a micro and macro approach to getting things done. So always being conscious of, you know, here's a short-term deliverable for company X that I know I got to get done today or this week. And also thinking about what does it mean to get that done effectively with the number of hours I have in the week. But then also kind of looking more at a, you know, a macro kind of KPI or OKR type structure. Like what is a company are we trying to do to be successful? How, how is my time being spent in this moment related to a broader corporate objective? You know, what are my own macro goals, right? And how is my time being spent related to my own indiv- individual goals? Um, so I think being able to, again, it's, it's less about, you know, really having a tight schedule for me. I think it's more about the self-reflection and self-awareness of what am I doing? How am I spending my time? How is it helping me? How is it helping the company? And how is it not only looking at the things that I need to get done this week or this day, but thinking about kind of macro and then future related goals at the same time. Well, Zach, if you've piqued anyone's interest 
today and they want to learn more about you or connect with you, how would they do that? Or Twitter, LinkedIn, what's the best way for folks to find you? Yeah, LinkedIn's the best way. Uh, Zachary Livingston, you'll see head of sales at ClearTrace. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things which I guess is another related point is <laughs> I'm not a huge social media buff. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Instagram. Mostly just around the fact that um, there are so many things distracting me in a given day that I really try to avoid things that are unnecessary distractions. So you won't find me on Insta. You won't find me on Twitter. You'll find me on Facebook, but I don't really use it. Uh, LinkedIn, Zachary Livingston. Uh, you, you can also email sales at cleartrace.io or info at cleartrace.io to get in touch with us. Fantastic. Well, Zach, as we round out the conversation, let's end today, as we always do with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is, I use your term, tracking? What's in your (laughs) crystal ball? Yeah, I'm very excited about this concept of uh, what's called AER or automated emissions reduction. For me, I look at what has been done for years around demand response, right, which is really taking a signal that an action needs to be taken by participants, right? And demand responses, well, there's some condition or some outage or, you know, the, the, the use of done the grid is too high. So let's engage market participants and get them to reduce their energy. I think the same thing is going to happen for carbon, right? I think people are going to look at the grid or look at how much carbon is being used at any given time across a group of participants. And there's going to be calls to action, right? And and there's going to be all kinds of drivers which result in decarbonization, right? So if, if you're a market participant and you decarbonize, uh, well, maybe you should be rewarded for that, right? And what does that look like as far as digital certifications and things that we use? You know, what is going to be this new carbon marketplace and carbon trading schema? Um, I think that's where we see a lot of things going and we're seeing policy and regulation move towards that. And I'm really excited to, to be a part of that. That is fascinating. I love the thought of tying emissions into this evolution of demand response that uh, it's not going to be enough in the future to automate our impact from an energy usage perspective, but rather uh, we will move beyond that to automate our emissions reduction because it will be so traceable, so actionable, and so visible that clear automation and and action around it can be made. That is fascinating. I was going to say that couple that trend with also the move to more intraday markets, right? So not looking at day ahead or week ahead, but looking at what is happening in the day, right? And I think as you have the the speed of transactions increase due to the advancement of a lot of this technology, you're going to see a really interesting convergence, not only of carbon markets, but of intraday markets. And I think we're really interested to see where that goes. You've been listening to Zach Livingston, head of sales for ClearTrace. You can learn more at ClearTrace.com. I-O. Zach, thanks, my friend. Thanks for coming on to Suncast and regaling us with the uh, the ins and outs of the carbon accounting market. Yeah, thanks, Nico, for having me. This was a lot of fun. All right, Solar Warriors, thank you. That is a wrap for today's discussion with my friend Zach Livingston. Zach, really appreciate your taking the time to be on Suncast with us today and dropping some incredible wisdom about how the climate markets are opening up and how we need to track and measure them better. (laughs) I am saturated with new knowledge as I'm sure you are with all the value bombs that Zach was dropping on us in this episode. But hey, if you are eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find resources and highlights from this and every other discussion along with book recommendations, social media links, and more over at mysuncast.com. And hey, since you're going to be online, 
I would really love if you'd head over to LinkedIn as well. Give us some insight. What was your favorite insight or recommendation from today? Maybe what was your biggest takeaway from the book list that Zach mentioned? Stranger in a Strange Land? Shoe Dog? Dune? What's your favorite? Did he miss one that's a favorite for you? I really appreciated Zach's attention to detail around tracking KPIs and OKRs as a consistent habit that every entrepreneur and good sales executive ought to be working on in their world. Well, I thank you for stopping by and I do hope you'll tune in next week as we always have a episode dropping on Thursday. I know today's episode dropped on Friday. We've got the guys from Renew Robot who participated in the Solar Prize Challenge and we're going to learn all about how they came about their idea and their technology for taking on the incredible opportunity and challenge of keeping our solar sites clear and clean. They'll be on the show discussing their IP, their entrepreneurial history, and where the future of industrial solar is going. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.